Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the end of time's occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on August 21st, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. My special guest today is Sarah DeGia, Chief Executive Officer of Change Lab Solutions. Sarah earned her law degree from Santa Clara University School of Law. What a beautiful campus that is. And her bachelor's degree in ethnic studies from the University of California, Berkeley. Before joining Change Lab Solutions, Sarah worked as a health program director at Latino Issues Forum and a legislative analyst at the Mexican American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and thereafter at the California Pan-Ethnic Health Network first as Director of Government Affairs and then as Executive Director. She's authored many publications on the health of communities of color in California, oral health disparities, mental health, and Latino health. Big welcome to the pod, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So the reason we've got to know each other is that we're two of the six editors, along with Scott Burris, uh, Wendy Pamet, Lance Gable, and Donna Levin, of a new report, uh, Assessing Legal Responses to COVID-19, that was published last week. Um, I already knew the others pretty well, but not you or your work. And so hopefully this will also be a, a great chance to find out a bit more. So can we start with Change Lab Solutions? Uh, what is it and what does it do? Oh, sure. Well, Change Lab Solutions is a national public health law and policy organization. So our focus is really about advancing equitable laws and policies to ensure that we can see greater health equity for all communities across the nation. We do that through very Various different ways. We work with community-based organizations, we work with local governments, and oftentimes with anchor institutions like universities or healthcare and hospital systems. And we are able to work with them to do legal research and policy analysis. Oftentimes they don't have lawyers or analysts on staff who can help them with those things. And so we bring our multidisciplinary focus of working with planners, lawyers, and other health advocates and analysts to help really understand what are the issues. Um, we offer technical assistance, like developing model laws and legislation, and then how to do advocacy, um, how to move a bill or a policy forward in your local or state government. I don't know how uh, confidential your uh, relationships are with, with these clients, but uh, maybe not mentioning any specific name. Can you give some examples of some of the things uh, that you've done with institutions? A couple of examples um, that I think are important and kind of relevant today are we've worked really closely with organizations across the nation um, to work on, for example, decreasing access to sugary drinks. Um, and we've done that in a lot of different ways. One is through looking at what are the ways in which we can regulate the sale of those kinds of drinks. Um, the other is what are the types of model laws or legislation that um, communities themselves could adapt to their local communities and then be able to um, bring forth policy. And the reason why we look at sugary drinks, for example, is that oftentimes sugary drinks are sort of targeted to um, working poor communities or communities mm -hmm. of color, um, which just adds on to the layer of um, health disparities that those communities often face. We've also done great work around expanding access to healthy foods. So what are the ways that you can make local corner stores a little 
bit more healthy? Um, what are the ways that we can improve the SNAP program, which is the um, the food assistance program at the national level? What are the ways that we can make those foods um, a little healthier and also more accessible to communities who, again, are struggling day to day to be able to make ends meet? So I was interested that both of the examples you gave were relatively sort of local. Um, is, is that something that you find organizations such as yours are becoming a lot more effective at? I mean, I've, I've been at conferences recently in which um, uh, folks have talked about how they're being able, being able to work at the city level and, and incorporate changes far more locally and perhaps having more success there than trying to sort of move the big rock up the hill of state government, let alone federal government. That's exactly right. There's such an interplay between local, state, and federal government, but it's often a little bit more difficult to access um, the engagement process at the federal level as opposed to the local level. So at the local level, um, our city councils and our county board of supervisors are often making really important decisions about how resources from the state and federal government are distributed or invested in. So if we think about education, school districts make a lot of really important decisions for our children. If we think about the ways that our funding is going towards transportation, whether or not that bus line is going to be cut or if that bus line is going to be funded, and also thinking about hospital systems. Um, mm. Our public hospital systems are you know, oftentimes located down the street or in the same neighborhood. And so the kind of funding that is able to be funneled to those hospital systems. So there's a lot of decisions that are made at the local level that people can get engaged in much more easily than you know, going to or flying to Washington, D.C. to testify in front of Congress. Um, and then oftentimes the state house is also far away. People can't necessarily travel there and do advocacy. So we've really seen um, a huge impact at the local level and the way that change could be could happen at the local level that is um, also just much more attuned to where what the needs of the local residents are. So different counties will differ um, depending on if they're rural or urban communities. Oftentimes at the local level, you may have um, many more diverse communities within a county than you may see, you know, um, different groups distributed around the state, for example. So again, that local, those local solutions can really make a huge difference in terms of the way that people feel it on a day-to-day basis. How do you get started? Um, do, you, do you wait for the local government agency to come to you or do you work with other nonprofits to try and gin up uh, interest in the work that you can do? You know, what's, what's the sort of the little edge that you can start pulling at that gets interest and, and, and gets you in there to start doing this work? It's a great question. And it's really, it's both. So we've been able to, over time, develop um, really close relationships with local public health departments. Um, and so, and we actually started out in California around tobacco control. Um, so we were at the forefront of developing tools, um, particularly using law as a tool to help with tobacco control. There was, you know, a great messaging that was taking place. There were really important campaigns campaigns to help people understand the dangers of smoking. But what hadn't been used is zoning, for example, zoning laws and regulations, looking at the ways 
in which um, we're offering um, uh, advertising, excuse me, to the youth or to other communities. So those were all legal tools that ChangeLab was able to develop and adapt to the public health model. Um, and so through those relationships with the state public health department and therefore local health departments, over time we've gotten to know um, many different local governments who then, when a, lo- when a, a local government is interested in moving an issue forward, they'll say, hey, have you worked with ChangeLab? They've got some great tools. We also have a library of different tools that we make available on our website that have, again, all the same solutions that we would offer in technical assistance, but we also offer it in um, a document and a very easy playbook that people can download and use because oftentimes people don't have the resources to, to work with us. But through our flexible funding with foundations and other, um, a- and other sources of funding, we're usually able to meet people where they're at and be able to offer solutions um, and be able to offer that technical assistance. And then recently, I would say over the past several years, we've really started to work more closely with community-based organizations who are interested in policy opportunities. They're interested in looking at what are the structural changes that we can make to our systems and environments rather than just doing this kind of Band-Aid approach. Like, it's great that we've got that one affordable housing unit now in this community that didn't have affordable housing before, but how do we actually look at the way that resources are distributed or resources are engaged at the local level to do housing and how can we make sure that it's going to be equitable and placed in the communities that need it the most. So we've been able to partner with various different local organizations to do that as well. Oh, that's fascinating. I think when I when I have heard these kinds of talks and and listened to these very local uh, initiatives, um, the the panel is usually split into two parts. The first is going through and talking about these positive uh, movements for change and so on. And the second part is the more sort of doom and gloom where people start talking about home rule disappearing as states uh, try and preempt uh, local action. Uh, Have you run into much of that? Yes, we actually have, unfortunately. There's quite a national trend taking place around um, that in in, um, preemption. And preemption, just in in case not everybody knows what that is, but it's the the, basically the interference, right, of of a government, a level of government that's a higher level of government into a lower level of government. So, for example, if the state preempts a local government from being able to um, expand affordable housing, for example, is one of those areas that we've seen um, preemption happening. We've seen it in um, paid leave laws, in minimum wage laws, even in um, broadband competition, trying to expand broadband competition so that more low-income families can be able to have broadband access. Um, It's a pretty dire situation, um, and what we're trying to do is actually educate communities on what preemption is and work with local and state governments to understand what the impact is, particularly on communities of color and poor working families as well. We've certainly seen some of those preemption home rule uh, clashes come up uh, during the pandemic, uh, particularly with regard to stay-at-home orders, mask orders. Um, uh, probably the, the, the most vitriol uh, has been in Georgia uh, with uh, the Atlanta mayor uh, 
uh, colliding frequently with um, the uh, the governor of Georgia over uh, such policies. So let's talk a little bit about the pandemic and and equity. Though I suppose when we talk about the pandemic. We tend to use the word inequity, don't we? Um, The data are striking. Um, Recent CDC data shows that compared to white persons, indigenous persons, Hispanic or Latina persons, or African-American persons are almost three times more likely to be positive for COVID-19, while African-Americans have a 2.1 times higher death rate. Um, But those pandemic numbers shouldn't be that much of a surprise to anyone. Uh, The National Urban League, Uh, publishes an equality index and compared to white persons um, uh, black persons uh, register about 73.8 percent hispanic persons about 78.8 percent compared to the 100 percent for white persons and for black persons the greatest differences lie in economics and social justice followed by education and health and how would you describe how these inequities, this lack of ine- lack of equity, has played out in at least this first wave, which I think we probably are still in of COVID nineteen. If you'll allow me, Nick, I wanted to sort of step back a little bit because we use terms like health equity and health disparities quite interchangeably, and so I wanted to take a moment just to kind of define what do we mean when we say health equity or health disparities or even health inequities. That's um, great. I was going to ask you about that because one of the things I think lawyers talk about, we talk about non-discrimination and we talk about equality, but we don't usually talk or at least accurately about equity. So it'd be great to have that 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 terminology broken down for us. Great. So, um, so health equity, there's a lot of definitions out there. We tend to use one that is... Um, defined by the National Academy of Sciences, but they define health equity as a state in which everyone has the opportunity to attain full health potential, and no one is disadvantaged in achieving this potential because of social position or any other socially defined circumstance. So in other words, people are able to reach their full potential, um, and it's not based on their demographic or their income status um, or where they come from, their their geography. Health disparities. Um, So this is the term that we hear quite often. And the reason why we hear that is because that's actually what's linked to the health outcome. So health disparities are differences in health outcomes that people of different demographic backgrounds experience. So for example, Black, Latinx, Native American, and Pacific Islander communities, they all tend to have higher rates of diabetes and heart disease than any other group that we've seen. And that's what's important here in COVID-19 is is that those underlying health conditions are what make people more vulnerable um, to getting COVID-19, but also in their uh, mortality rates or how they recover. And so the tendency in thinking about health disparities is we tend to want to blame these poor health conditions on the individual choices that people make every day. But it's really important to acknowledge that health disparities are actually a result of unjust systems. And these 
these are unjust systems that affect the options and the choices that people actually have or are available to them in their everyday lives. So this is where and why our COVID-19 legal assessment is so important is because our laws are very much intertwined. Our lives are intertwined with the laws and policies that affect those everyday choices. And we can see that not all laws and policies are really designed for everybody to have healthy options or everybody to make good choices. Um, but then, in fact, some laws have been designed or implemented in a way that really negatively impact communities and particularly communities of color and poor communities, LGBT folks and immigrant communities. Um, and we see these examples in housing, healthcare, and worker protections as just an example. And so what COVID-19 did was really just expose what we know and have seen, but in a way that we haven't actually seen, you know, elevate to this level in the past. So what we're really witnessing is how these existing systems are in structure and structures have unfairly and unjustly contributed to these health conditions. Um, and so this is where, where the definition of health inequities is so important because health inequities are differences in health that are avoidable, unjust, and unfair. So these inequities are actually the result of those systems, policies, and norms um, that are forming sort of systems of oppression that really end up shaping these individuals' experiences. So as we look across the different issue areas that we've covered in the legal assessment, we've looked at housing, we've looked at incarcerated individuals and the penal system, we've looked at immigrants and LGBT communities, people with disabilities. And as you see, um, the, the experiences that many of these communities have in common is that sort of laws and policies haven't been set up in a way that are enabling those communities and those individuals to have that full opportunity to attain their full health potential. I find that you're, you're, the way you you move us away from blaming individuals for choices is very interesting. And certainly in other areas I've worked in, such as the opioid use, overdose crisis, and so on, um, there's this continual attempt to, to view these persons as having some sort of moral defect, that as though that's responsible for putting them in in the place that they are. Um, is, is, is this relatively unintentional in modern law and policy, or do you still see strains of sort of intentional uh, discrimination and sort of the, the, the institutionalization of inequality um, through our legal system? Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, we do continue to see the ways in which our legal system is, well, let's just face it, we have used laws and policies to set up the system the way that it is. And we can also use laws and policies to get us out of that same system and to create better opportunities for people as well. I think the key is for us to think about our laws and policies from a structural and systemic level rather than just from an individual level. So our legal system looks at someone who has a discrimination case from an individual perspective. But the reality is, is that there are systems and structures and biases and practices that have continued to layer um, oppression on oppression on oppression that are creating that certain circumstance within that 
individual. So from our perspective, it's impossible to just look at the individual experience. You have to step back and look at the broader structure and the broader system to understand how these laws interplay together to create what has led down to this one particular individual circumstance. And there's a lot of research out there that actually shows these layers of stressors, these layer, these systemic layers of challenges result in people's health conditions. So there are experts out there who show that when you live in poverty, constant poverty, you have a lack of food access and you have unstable housing. Those are going to be sources of pervasive stress over and over again. They're layers of stress. And that eventually that will lead to those kinds of health conditions like heart disease and obesity and eventually even diabetes. And then we also see that there's a layer um, where experts have found that when you have consistent exposure to racial discrimination, even if it's at an individual level, but it's over time, these microaggressions against people of color or, or certain communities, that that also has an adverse effect on your health as well. And so again, we can look at laws and policies. I mean, they they have contributed to these structural challenges. I think our COVID legal assessment really demonstrated the ways in which our legal system um, and the and the lack of coordination between governments has contributed to those inequities and disparities. Right? They've caused them, but they're also contributing to, which is why you're seeing these higher rates of Black and Latinx communities dying. But they can also be reversed, and so we have a great number of legal um, policy recommendations that if we we could potentially turn the tide in this pandemic, if we are to look at some of those laws and policies to be able to affect the structural um, changes that are needed so that we don't see and c- continue to see those health disparities. So I think for me, at least one of the difficulties in this area, in this space I have is that the legal system tends to always look up to individuals, right? Individual disputes, um, criminal uh, prosecutions of individuals. And it's quite hard for many, I think, to see how you can bring in the structural issues in when you're dealing with serial individual cases, if that makes any sense. We understand from studying critical race theory and so on, the the institutional layering, but actually making a difference on an individual case-by-case basis is quite difficult. I think this is where, too, that the legal field and the civil rights field, for example, there are limitations, right, within that body of of law and where we actually need to make the effort to work across different sectors or work with other institutions so that we can have that multiplier effect. Um, So you're right. I mean, the legal system is going to continue to look at the individual. I think there could be some changes there that we would see very positive benefits. Like if we didn't have the kinds of penalties that we see on people, the kind of mandatory minimums and things like that, we would absolutely see, we wouldn't, we wouldn't see as many people who are then tracked into the penal system. If we looked at, for example, the role that school discipline has um, on someone's track into the penal system, I think we could then work with educational systems or educational institutions to stop that kind of a practice, right? So just the thinking about what are the penalties or how are we penalizing people or 
how are we, on the other hand, offering the tools and supports that are needed to be able to get people out of those continued states of stress that are leading to those kinds of health outcomes. So again, um, and there's there's a great article, I think chapter 35 talks a little bit about the way that our legal system could work with the public healthcare system and could also work with justice movements to think about what are the ways that we could actually support and collaborate together to address these structural challenges, because one institution isn't going to do it alone, right? We need each other to be able to do that. All right. So during um, our process in coming up with the the assessment, um, you you read, I think, uh, more than than most of the rest of us on the editorial committee, because you made crystal clear during the process that every chapter, every set of recommendations had to critically reflect on equity issues. Um, And you brought that to the work. And I think that was incredibly important. But we cover, what, 35 different legal domains in the report, and we probably don't have time to go through all of them. So I was wondering whether, both from the perspective of the initial assessment, where we see law and policy being a negative in the way that the laws and policies evolved or have been implemented, but then secondly, in our recommendations for change, whether there are some of these uh, micro domains that that we could talk about. I'm going to start off with one that I'm pretty sure is on your list of one that you'd want to talk about, which is what happens when we finally get a COVID-19 vaccine uh, or some other kind of treatment such as antibodies and so on. Um, uh, I think at uh, uh, one of our our many uh, Zoom editorial conferences, I raised the question, is this going to, uh, is the, are the first uh, million batches of the vaccine going to go to uh, persons of color uh, and poverty, or are they going to persons living in um, uh, gated communities? So this is a really interesting area of focus. And I think um, we, it was beyond the scope of this project, I think, to really analyze and focus on this particular issue. But this is going to be of critical importance to um, to the world and also in particular to our, our nation. Um, and what's interesting, I think, is that the, the movement against vaccines, it really does cut across um, income status and it cuts across racial and ethnic um, backgrounds as well. Um, some recent reports suggest that um, you know we need between 70 to 80 percent um, take-up rate for vaccines, and yet only about half of the country would be interested in actually um, taking the vaccine. And I think there are some very serious equity considerations that need to be put on the table for us to consider because the folks who are out in the public every day are, for the most part, black and brown communities, right, who have been deemed essential workers during this time right, frame, right. but are in the low-income, low-wage area of work whose jobs are on the line, right, who don't feel comfortable speaking up in their workplace 
to say, I can't come to work because I don't feel good today. They don't have paid sick leave. They don't have minimum wage. They are struggling on a day-to-day basis. And so I think even, I feel like even before we get to the vaccine question, there are some actual very important worker protections and family supports and family protections that we could be offering our communities now, um, which again, the legal assessment pulls out and makes very clear that would be, that would provide that kind of security to families and that could also create um, less division and sort of more cohesion within communities that would then be able to build the trust to help um, people know that the government does support me and that um, we are supported by the government and we support the government and that we're in this together. Because to me, you know, building that trust and that cohesion and respect is what is needed for vaccines, right? Like we have to understand that herd immunity is important for all of us. So I think that there, again, this is where law is really intertwined, right, with our day-to-day lives is that law could be such a powerful tool right now to help bring those supports, that trust and cohesion to communities so that then we feel supported and we're able to then get to that next hurdle in terms of, okay, how do we approach this um, sort of medical challenge within the vaccine? So what other chapters, uh, microdomains, particularly interested you or or a sort of rate, you know, that you see as sort of raising the equity stakes as, as you went through them, both the assessment and, and also the recommendations? Yeah. So as you mentioned, I did read all um, 36 chapters or 35 chapters in the closing reflection. And what I was looking for is many of these areas, um, there are some level of, there was some level of disparity there ahead of time or before we um, got into COVID or before um, we were facing COVID-19. So for example, um, access to healthcare, um, communities of color and poor individuals have been locked out of healthcare for a long time. Immigrant communities, LGBT communities um, have all experienced discrimination and sort of fear within the healthcare system. And so um, that, for example, like just highlighting that those disparities were already there before COVID hit um, and that therefore they're going to be exacerbated even further if someone is sick and can't get testing or if someone is sick and can't get care or is you know worried about getting care. Um, immigration rights is another area in which there were already disparities. You know, we've seen this administration use immigration as a hammer um, and as an exclusionary tool rather than thinking about what are the ways that we can support um, our hardworking immigrant families within this community and within this country. Um, so, but I, I think there's a couple other things that became really clear as I was reading through these different chapters. You know, one was this sort of universal call in some ways for data collection, much better data collection. We need standardization and better collection of demographic data to really help us understand even more so where those disparities are. Even with the insufficient data that we have, we still know that there are disparities, but I think better data collection would be really helpful. I think also just dedicating some resources to number one, studying these disparities so that we better understand what were the cause of them. And also offering states and localities the resources to be able to address those disparities at a local level. Um, One of the challenges that we saw in the article is the lack of coordination between levels of government, right? So you had, um, you know, the federal government determining that they weren't going to take a more national approach to um, addressing the pandemic 
pandemic, and you had states that had very uneven ways of um, implementing different policies, and even more um, challenges at the local level, because then you had states interfering with the localities ability to set their own um, standards, depending on what was important to their community and their residents. So I think just thinking a lot more about that coordination, and also the kinds of resources that are going there to the localities. Um, And then I think, you know, the, the last two, so parts five and six, I think have a lot of equity implications in them in terms of really thinking about what are the worker protections that are needed? How do we think about immigration, LGBT and disability rights? How do we think about race um, as we're thinking about policies and systems change? Um, and all of the authors did a tremendous job of not just highlighting the disparities that were existing, but also what are the concrete solutions that are needed today that could get us um, to a slightly better position so that we could better address COVID-19. Uh, it must be very sad for, um, or maybe anger uh, provoking for someone who's so dedicated to uh, equity to to experience a political atmosphere at the moment uh, that uh, actually promotes inequity uh, and division. It is, and I appreciate you raising that because we... Um yeah, I've spent most of my career working on number one, expanding access to healthcare for communities of color, um, and just making that healthcare system understanding responsive to the needs of not just communities of color, but also really diverse communities as well. Um, and I think we really saw the pinnacle of it wasn't surprising to me um, that to see the the high death rates, but it was very infuriating and really sad to think that we've had so much opportunity and so many resources to be able to make change um, and that we're kind of we're, we've taken many, many steps backwards. Um, I'm I'm positive going forward that we do have some solutions again that could make um, some very quick, I think they could have some very quick um, results in terms of helping people on a day-to-day basis um, feel that pain a little bit less. Um, but we still have a lot, a long work, a lot of work to do, a long road to hoe here. Well, it's been a real pleasure working on the project with you so far. And uh, thank you for tolerating um, the academics. It was my pleasure. I had such a great time and I learned a ton. I learned so much from each one of you in your subject issue areas, but also about your institutions. And it really pushed me in a way that um, I'm new to Change Lab. And so it helped me really ground my own work and vision for this organization and for the work going forward. Um, So thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure. And that was The Week in Health Law. You can find Sarah on Twitter at S-D-E-G-U-I-A-J-D at Change Lab works. That was a great discussion. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Show notes are at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry, N-I-C-O-L-A-S-T-E-R-R-Y on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy, safe and sane week.